Section 2 of The Perfect World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Perfect World by Ellis Grimsar. Section 2 The Curse. The two men had now been working for three months at the mine, and the villagers had become used to the sight of strangers in Marshfield and Indeed, as the weeks sped by, and nothing uncanny happened, they began to gradually forget the curse in connection with the two young Forsyths. Summer was now waning, leaves were beginning to fall, and folks were making preparations for a hard winter. Mr. Winthrop was still going round on his kindly errands, and had become sincerely attached to the two youths who had taken up their residence so near him. Indeed, there was no one else in the village to whom they could go for social intercourse and nearly every evening Mrs. Skeet's little parlor was full of the smoke and chatter of the vicar and his two young friends. It was now the first Tuesday in October, and the evenings were growing chilly. Mrs. Skeet had lighted a nice fire, and they all sat round it, enjoying the warmth of its glow. People outside passing by heard the sound of merry laughter, and Mr. Winthrop's characteristic chuckled and smiled with him. But Maul Murlock passed the cottage hurriedly and drew a shawl closer around her shoulders while a slight moan came from between her tightly compressed lips. Of all the inhabitants of Marshfielden, there were still one who had not forgotten the curse. Well, boys, said Mr. Winthrop, I suppose you feel used to your life among us now? Yes, answered Alan. It seems almost like home to us. We've never had a proper home, broke in Desmond. Ours is a rather romantic story, said Alan. Our mothers were twin sisters. They married on the same day and went to the same place for their honeymoon. A year later, my mother died in giving me birth, and Desmond's mother died when he was only a few months old, so we were both left babies to get on the best way we could without a woman's care. Poor lads, poor lads, sighed the vicar. When I was five, my father died, said Desmond, and four years later, Alan's father was drowned. Uncle John then took us to live with him. But as he was a bachelor, we were brought up in the care of nurses and tutors and had no real home life. You are fond of your uncle? queried the vicar. Rather, answered Alan. Uncle John is the dearest old boy imaginable. He is a bit of a crank, though. He's been working for years on what he calls his Petrotheolan airship. His what? laughed Mr. Winthrop. His Petrotheolan airship. It's his own invention, you know, but up to now he's been unsuccessful. He's built a wonderful aluminum airship, most beautifully fitted and upholstered. In fact, it is absolutely ready to fly, but up to now it won't budge an inch. What? He is under the impression, went on Alan, that in the near future flying will be an everyday occurrence, and it is his great ambition to own one of the most comfortable, most speedy, and lightest airship of the day. Mr. Winthrop smiled. There is a great deal of talk about flying now, said he but do you honestly think it will ever come to anything? I don't know, said Alan thoughtfully. We have conquered the sea. Iron on the water shall float like any wooden boat, he quoted. We have built ships that can submerge and remain underwater and navigate for certain periods of time. I see no reason why the modern man should not also conquer the air. Mr. Winthrop shook his head. I may be old-fashioned, but it seems impossible to believe that navigable ships could be built for flying that were safe. I don't doubt that airships will be built that up to a certain point will be successful, say for a few hours' flight, but it seems inconceivable to me that a man could so conquer the air that commerce and travel would benefit. Well, Uncle John thinks he will conquer it with his Argenta, went on Alan. 
"'Surely that was not what you called it just now?' asked the vicar. Alan laughed. "'The Argenta is the name of the ship itself, but Petrodiolan is the name of the power he is experimenting on that he is desirous of using to propel it. "'The machine itself is complete,' went on Desmond enthusiastically. "'The balance is perfect, and its engines are supposed to be of wonderful velocity, but no known power will raise it even an inch from the ground. So he's still experimenting on this spirit.' It is a formula which embraces petrol, radium, and theolin. These chemicals are blended in some way or other, concentrated and solidified. The engines are made so as to generate electricity in the bonnet part. The current acts on the solidified cubes, which as they melt are sent through metal retorts drop by drop, and then being conveyed to the engines should make the machine fly. Well, I know it all sounds very fantastic, but my uncle firmly believes in the ultimate success of his experiments. His ambition is to be able to fly for about 100 hours with about a cupful of this powerful matter. He expects each drop from the vaporized spirit as it issues from the retort to keep the engines going for about 50 minutes. It all sounds very interesting, said Mr. Winthrop, but is extremely puzzling. I'm afraid that I would rather trust myself to Mother Earth than to your uncle's very ingenious Argenta. So would I, laughed Desmond, but the dear old boy is so keen on his work, we don't like to discourage him. And, finished Alan, there in a most wonderful shed rests the Argenta, its body of glistening aluminum, its interior richly upholstered and wonderfully arranged from engine room to kitchen, but absolutely lifeless. And there I expect it will remain, for he will never destroy it. It's his biggest hobby after us. Sometimes I think it even comes before us. He has the money, he has the brains, and he may perfect this power, and if he does, he will have conferred a great benefit upon humanity. You stayed with him until you came here, I suppose. Yes, answered Alan. We went to Eton, Cambridge. Cambridge? Mr. Winthrop's face lighted up. Dear me, dear me. What college, may I ask? Queens, said Desmond. Queens? That was my college. Indeed, cried the two boys together. Yes, I've not been there for over forty-five years. I expect the dear old place has changed a great deal. Yes, we had rooms opposite each other on the same staircase in the new buildings, said Desmond. That was since my time, said Mr. Winthrop rather sadly. I've never seen the new buildings. I was in the Walnut Tree Court. Then he stopped and gazed into the fire, his eyes sparkling and a color coming into his old worn cheeks as he thought of the days of his youth. Reminiscences came quickly. Do you remember this? I remember when so-and-so happened. So the conversation went on until they were rudely interrupted by a sharp knock on the door, startling in its unexpectedness. All three rose hurriedly. Come in, cried the vicar, and Mrs. Skeet appeared breathing heavily with a look of horror in her eyes. Whatever is the matter? asked Mr. Winthrop in dismay, startled out of his usual placidity by her frightened mien. Dan, Dan Murlock's baby. It's gone, sir. Gone? Gone where? No one knows, sir. He was playing in the garden safe and sound only five minutes before, and when Maul went to call him in to put him to bed, he had vanished. It's impossible for the child to have gone far, said the vicar. Why, he's only a baby. Three last months, sir. Has anyone looked for him? What have they done? The child can't be spirited away, said Alan. Why, there's no traffic in the village that could possibly hurt him. Mrs. Skeet looked scared. If you please, sir, she half-whispered. People do say as how it's the curse and that he has been spirited away. The vicar blinked his eyes. Nonsense, Mrs. Skeet. I'm ashamed of you. Never let me hear such words from you again. Spirited away indeed. 
I expect he is straight away into the woods at the back of the Murlocs' cottage. Come, lads, we'll go down and see Dan and his wife, and do our best to help him. Taking up their hats, the three made their own way down the street, usually so quiet and still, but now buzzing with excitement. As they reached the Murlocs' cottage, they saw the front door was open wide, leaving the kitchen and garden beyond exposed to view. Curious neighbors, sympathetic friends, open-mouthed children were surrounding the stricken mother, who was rocking herself to and fro in her abandonment and grief. Let us go through, said the vicar, and the two boys followed him. The woman heard the approaching footsteps and lifted up her tear-stained face to the intruders. She held out her hands pathetically to the vicar, and the tears rolled down her cheeks unchecked. He took hold of the toil-worn hands and was about to speak when she caught sight of the two boys behind him. Her eyes dilated and her body stiffened. Suddenly, she uttered a piercing scream and pointing a shaking hand at them. Go, go, she cried. You came to Marshfield and unbidden. You defied the curse. Now you've taken my baby, my darling, darling baby. Dan put his arm about her tenderly. Don't he talk on so, lass, said he gently. Sure we'll find the baby. Already, John Skinner and Matt Harding have gone with search parties to find the wee lad. We'll get him back, wife mine but she only looked fiercely at the strangers. Go, go, the curse is on us all. Mr. Winthrop silently motioned to the two lads, and they quickly left the stricken house and made their way back to their rooms in silence. The next morning on their way to work, they missed Dan Murlock. Some of the miners eyed them suspiciously as they asked where he was, and Slater, their landlord, was the only one to satisfy their curiosity. With his wife, he said curtly, the wee laddie has not been found. "'Wherever can he be?' said Desmond in bewilderment. Slater shook his head. Search parties were out all night, but could find no trace or tidings of him. "'Have you any idea what has happened?' asked Alan. Slater gave a quick look at each in turn, and then muttered something unintelligible under his breath, and the boys had to be content with that. It was a terrible day at the mine for the two boys. They had to partake of their midday meal in silence, for not one of the colliers addressed a word to them if he could possibly avoid it. They were regarded with suspicion mingled with fear, and the curse seemed to be on everyone's lips. Two days passed, a week, a fortnight. Still Dan Murlock's baby was not found, and at last the broken-hearted parents appeared at church in mourning, thus acknowledging to the world that they had given up all hope of ever seeing their little one again. Murlock was silent about it all, but everyone who knew him realized that he was a changed man. He had idolized his wife and child and now at one blow had lost both, for his baby was without doubt dead, and his wife had turned from him in the throes of her grief. The weeks passed on, Christmas was nigh upon them, and the child was spoken of in hushed tones as one speaks of the dead. The two boys were treated as aliens by the men, and they were beginning to chafe under their treatment. Although nothing had been said openly, they knew instinctively that they were blamed by the superstitious inhabitants for the disappearance of the baby. Alan said Desmond one day, as they were sitting apart from the rest, eating their dinner, I can't stand this. I'm going to speak to the men. Stand what? asked Alan wearily. Why, the whispers and sneers that are showered on us whenever we are near them. They all shrink away from us, treat us as if we were lepers. Even Slater avoids us, and the curse is whispered from lip to lip as we pass. You'll do no good, Desmond. We had nothing to do with the child's going away, yet they treat us as if we had murdered him. Leave it alone, said Alan. I don't know what it is, but this place seems uncanny. I think I'm almost beginning to believe in the curse myself. 
Desmond made no reply, but squaring his shoulders began to walk toward the miners. Look here, you fellows, he began. What's wrong with you all? Why are you treating my cousin and me as if we were murderers? We weren't responsible for Murloc's little child vanishing away. The miners moved restlessly and muttered together, each waiting for a spokesman to assert himself, who would teach them the line of action they should take. Desmond continued, You talk about the curse. We knew nothing about it when we came here, and to us it seems ridiculous to imagine there is anything supernatural about the whole affair. The river is only a quarter mile from their garden gate. I know it's been dragged, but after all it is full of whirlpools and weeds. And if the little chap did fall into it, ten to one his little body will never be found. Suddenly a leader was found among the men, and Matt Harding stood up. Look here, mates, said he. We don't suppose these young gentlemen actually hurt Dan Murlock's baby, or that they know where he went to. But after all, the curse tells us not to have strangers in Marshfield or evil will befall. It may befall them, it may befall us, but someone will reap ill. Now it's really Slater's fault for giving them lodgings. Let Slater turn them out, and that may break the curse. Aye, aye, cried the men in unison. Where is Slater? asked one burly fellow. With the shift above came the reply in another voice. Then came groans from the rest. Turn them out, turn them out. There is no need to turn us out, said Allen with quiet dignity. We will find rooms outside Marshfield and, and leave at the end of the week. Leave now. Leave now, cried a hoarse voice, which they recognized as belonging to Toby Skinner. That was the one word needed to make the miners obstreperous. Yes, go now, go now, they cried. By the end of the week all our babes may be gone. In vain the signal was given for the men to resume work. But they were free of their pent-up feelings, and refused to listen to the strident tones of the bell that called them back to their duties. Suddenly the manager's voice was heard above the din and babble. Get to your work at once, he thundered, or take my word for it, there will be a general lockout tomorrow. Gradually the men quieted, relieved of the strain of the past few weeks, and slunk back to work. What's the trouble? asked Mr. Dixon, coming to the boys. They think we are the cause of the disappearance of Dan Murlock's baby, explained Allen to the manager with some bitterness. Yes, continued Desmond, and now they demand that we leave Marshfieldon. That damn curse is driving us mad. These people are like a set of uncivilized savages who believe in witchcraft and omens of the twelfth century. Mr. Dixon smiled as he answered them. Our Marshfieldon folk are unique. They are almost a race in themselves. As Cornishmen consider themselves Cornish and not English, so Marshfieldon men call themselves Marshfieldons. It is true they are very superstitious, for they believe implicitly in the folklore that has been handed down to them from all time. What would you advise us to do? asked Allen somewhat impatiently. Mr. Dixon thought a moment and then said quickly, The widow of one of our men lives in a little cottage not a quarter of a mile from here. It stands on Corlett ground, not Marshfieldon. She has a hard struggle to make both ends meet. I'll send round at once and see if she is willing to take you to as lodgers. If she will, then go to her, for she is clean, respectable, and will look after you well. Meanwhile, neither of you has had a day off yet, so go and arrange about your luggage, and I'll see you are fixed up somewhere with rooms. Thanks, said Alan. I shall be very sorry to leave Marshfieldon, though. It's such a quaint old-world place. Far too old-world for strangers, said Mr. Dixon significantly. The little village street was buzzing with excitement when they reached Marshfieldon. Women were rushing to and fro across the cobbled stones, and the whole place showed signs of some great disturbance. 
As the boys approached, a sudden hush seemed to pervade the place, and the women huddled together and whispered, The curse! The curse! Alan shrugged his shoulders. I'll see to the thing, said he. You go along to Mr. Winthrop and tell him of the change in our plans. Right, old boy. And Desmond went towards Mr. Winthrop's rooms, whistling and doing his best to ignore the hostile looks that were directed at him. Alan went into the little room that had become so dear to them both. The cottage was deserted. Mrs. Slater was absent, and as he made his way up to the little bedroom, he sighed as he thought of leaving the dear little place. In a very short space of time, the drawers were emptied and the trunks packed. Everything was done except the putting together of the hundred and one odds and ends that invariably remain about. That's good, said he to himself as he rose from his knees, having finished strapping up the trunks, and he surveyed his handiwork with pride as he realized the short time it had taken him to complete it all. Alan, he turned round suddenly. It was Desmond's voice. Coming, old chap, but Desmond was in the room with a white, set face, trembling limbs, and a look of horror in his eyes. Good God, whatever is the matter? he asked. John Meal, Matt Harding, gasped Desmond. Have found Dan's boy? eagerly. No, their children has disappeared too. What? It's true, Mr. Winthrop told me. That's what caused the commotion when we arrived here this morning. This news had only just become known. Alan seemed struck dumb. He looked at Desmond with unseeing eyes. His tongue swelled, and his mouth grew parched, but his lips would not form words. Then suddenly sounds came. I wonder, is it the curse after all? I wondered that too. When were they missed? The children were all in school safe and sound. Lunchtime came, and they were seen to enter the playground with the other little ones. Ten minutes later, the bell was rung for them all to reassemble. When the children did so, it was found that there were five children missing. Harding's three little girls and Meals too, had disappeared. The headmistress was furious, thinking they had all gone off together and were playing truant. She sent a message round to the parents, so John Meal left his work in the fields and insisted on a search being made. He swore it was the curse, and that if he found his children, he would find them in the company with Harding's and Dan's boy. Do you think it's a band of gypsies at work? suggested Alan. There have been no gypsies near Marshfielden for over five years, they say. Besides that, the extraordinary thing is, the children disappeared from the playground. Well, there is a ten-foot wall around it, so it is impossible for them to have climbed over. The only way out is past the headmistress's desk. She was sitting there the whole of the break, and declares that for the whole ten minutes of the luncheon time, the hall was entirely deserted and no one passed her. It seems impossible for them to have left the playground that way, and equally impossible by the front entrance. Why, it sounds like witchcraft, said Alan. A voice startled them. It was Mrs. Slater, her eyes red from weeping. I beg of you two young gentlemen to go, she sobbed. The curse is upon us. We are going, said Alan gently, but we will do our utmost to discover the children. Now let us have our account. But the woman threw out her hands before her with a cry. No, no, not a penny, sir. Oh, come, Mrs. Slater, don't be foolish. Let us have our bill, urged Alan. But Mrs. Slater was obdurate. It's only two days you owe me, sir, and I wouldn't touch a penny. You are quite welcome to what you've had, only go. Go. It was useless to argue, and they left the house with heavy hearts, and went toward the blacksmith in order to ask someone to take their luggage away for them. Good morning, Jim, said Alan pleasantly as they reached the forge. The man looked up and greeted them carefully, and as he saw Alan about to step across the threshold, he gave a cry. 
Donny, put your foot inside, gentlemen. Donny, please. Oh, the curse be upon us all. The boys shrugged their shoulders helplessly, and Alan spoke quickly. Send your boy up to Slater's, will you, Jim? We want our luggage taken from there to Mrs. Warren's cottage at Corlett. You be a-going away? asked the man eagerly. Yes. I be mighty glad, sirs. I don't mean to be rude, sirs. Of course we shall miss you sorely, but the curse has hit us sore hard since you came. Then you'll send your boy, Jim? Jim scratched his head. Couldn't you manage it yourselves? Surely it won't harm you to help us out of Marshfieldin, said Alan bitterly. I don't rightly know, sir, but... Well, I'd rather lend you my trolley, sir, than my boy. I do be mighty feared of the curse. All right, Jim, give us the trolley. We'll do it ourselves. The blacksmith wheeled it out and gave it with half an apology to Alan. Don't apologize, Jim. I understand. But the blacksmith had one more thing to say. Don't any trouble to bring it back to Marshfield and sirs. Leave it with Ezra Meekin. He'll bring it back for you. Oh, don't fear, Jim. We won't return to Marshfield and once we've left. Ezra shall return it safely. We'll pay you now. Jim was not too frightened to refuse payment, and the liberal amount of silver they showered on him touched him. I don't mean to be rude, sir, he began, but the boys had started on their way and were already wheeling the lumbering trolley down the uneven street. Jim went back into his forge with a shaking hand. Had he helped the curse by lending his trolley? Doubly so, indeed, by accepting payment. And as he beat the hammer on the anvil, sparks flew out all around him like little red devils thirsting for prey. When the miners came home that night, they were unaware of the double tragedy that had come into their midst. The strangers were gone. They rejoiced, and Matt Harding was among the merriest. Mr. Winthrop and John Meal were away still searching for the missing ones, and no one had dared go to the mine to tell Matt of his loss. He received the news with a set face and strong self-control. No word of comfort was given him by his comrades. He needed none. Blindly, he staggered home, his loving, grief-stricken wife comforting and consoling him, bearing up herself in order to help the man she loved. Silently, the miners prepared for another fruitless search. The two young gentlemen are going to help, volunteered a woman in the crowd. We don't want no help, cried a man, bearing his brawny arm. We'll find the chillin' ourselves. But the search proved futile, as they almost expected, for as Murloc's boy had vanished completely, so had these other five children, but still stranger things were happening. Mrs. Skeet possessed a dun cow of which she was very proud. Two days after the disappearance of the children, she tied it up and it stall in the byre, as it was suffering from an inflamed heel. Next morning when she entered the byre, the cow had gone, and the whole of the thatched roof had been burnt away. Rushing into the cottage, she called Mr. Winthrop, but there was no reply. She knocked at his bedroom door. The room sounded empty. Again she knocked, and fear made her open it. In a second she was out and shrieking in her terror, for the window was open wide and the vicar too had disappeared. End of section 2